Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Talk about the regime, we can welcome in here in New York, Jens Nordvik, Exante Data founder and CEO, who joins us around a table right now. Jens, it's great to have you with us. Thank you. Is Thank it you. still Goldilocks or are things changing? Well, so people definitely got very worried about the, the spike in wage growth the, the previous month. So the fact that that's coming down is important. Uh, but obviously, we have a lot of noise in this data. There's something about the hours work swinging up and down that is influencing these numbers in both directions. So I, I personally think it's important to look ahead. Like, what is the trajectory of the economy? Yeah. And uh, what is really interesting is that the, not only have we got the, the tax cut that is sort of working its way through its economy, but we have very, very significant increases in fiscal spending in the second half of that year, of this year, and actually first half of next year as well. That's going to add a lot to growth, right? So we're looking at what the economy is doing now, but we know it's going to shift up a gear pretty much uh, over the next 12 months. And uh, it'll be very, very interesting to see how the, the Fed reacts to that. Are they going to sort of be... Uh, reacting uh, slowly, yeah. or they're going to say, "Okay, we need to be a bit more proactive." That that's the key. To so me. I can't tell you how many research notes I've read this morning with the word Goldilocks in it. Kit Jukes over at Sockgem with the with the title of his research this morning: "Who spiked Goldilocks's porridge?" And he's talking about the fiscal stimulus that comes from Washington D.C. So help me understand what this means for the Federal Reserve. They've had a regime for the last few years of output rich, inflation poor. And then all of a sudden, they've got to start thinking about capacity constraints and what happens when the fiscal stimulus really starts to bite. What is the prudent monetary policy response to that? You've got years on your side of just output rich, inflation poor, but the real prospect that things are starting to shift. Well, I think that the prudent uh, monetary policy is to really keep your options open. So we were on TV like a couple of minutes ago and we talked about, OK, should the Fed uh, really make every single Fed meeting live? I think that would be a good option here. Like They need to have the ability to step up the pace of tightening if they see it. Yeah. And uh, one way of, of, of sort of uh, bringing that optionality into play is to make every single uh, meeting a live meeting with a press conference. So that would be one thing. Uh, the other thing, I think, is to do with uh, the, the signals that they send a little bit further ahead. I think increasing the pace of hikes beyond for a year right now would be a dramatic step. But they can signal, okay, next year, next year we want to keep our options open. We don't know exactly where our star is. It's a very academic concept. So perhaps we need to go longer than people are anticipating. I think that's the kind of forward guidance they can send now. And I think that would soon be appropriate. Within the forward guidance is a Fed that has to act. Everybody seems to agree on that. How far behind are they? The, the real rate, the Fed funds real rate is still negative, right? Yeah. Um, I think the problem is that we get so tied to this very academic way of analyzing what the equilibrium rate is. This R star concept is something that is incredibly difficult to calculate, and it's easy to say, okay, here's a good academic paper. Now mm-hmm. I'm going to believe this number. But in reality, nobody knows. So I think this is probably one area where we can go back to the Greenspan days and really go into the minutiae and say, okay, how is each sector really responding 
to these slightly higher rates. I've heard this from other people. What, what's your reading of that? I mean, you're not out there looking at every sector, but what's your reading of each and every sector right now? Because John and I get mail. When we say that it's a fully employed America, our, our audience thinks we're nuts. Well, we can we can see that it's definitely a big move in the participation rate in the in the latest numbers. So that's very very interesting, and uh, I guess uh, Yellen was was uh, very vocal a little while ago about saying, okay, we need to push this economy harder to see, okay, yeah. is there some kind of reverses to raises we can bring into play here? And perhaps she was right. Uh, but I think at, uh, in terms of evaluating what's going on with the economy. It's also important to think about, okay, the various sectors, can they actually cope with higher rates? And uh, what's very interesting, if you look at, at the sort of debt levels, right, there's often a lot of focus on the, on the fact that, okay, we have a fiscal problem, we have a, a debt problem in, in the government space. But if you look at the household sector, we actually have less debt relative to disposable income than we had the, before the crisis. So that's a sector that I think can be quite resilient. Uh, so um, I think it's very, very hard to, to say, okay, our star is mm -hmm. real rate a little bit above zero. Maybe we can get to substantially higher nominal rates than people are anticipating now. Well, Jens, I think there's two ways of looking at this. And Danny Blanchflower of Dartmouth was messaging me over the weekend, of course. He would be very dovish if he was on the Federal Reserve. And the data backs him up. The participation rate is rising. This is an economy still printing 300,000 jobs, apparently, in a given month. Um, we've been looking at 200K every other month, seemingly. And yet wage growth isn't picking up. So there is a, a dovish picture you can paint of the labour market. At the same time, there's another way of just looking at this practically. Should rates at the Fed be around 1.5% near an emergency setting when we're this late in the cycle and GDP is as high as it is? Yeah, no, I, I, I think uh, this is uh, the big debate. Like, we can discuss the minutiae about, okay, what is the wage growth number now? But the really big picture is when you set monetary policy, are you going to set it based on whether it's important that inflation is 1.9 or 2.0, or you're going to take a bigger picture where you say, okay, we have a strong economy and we want to have real rates that's going to sort of create a degree of stability for the long term in the financial system. And I think we've, we, as we look around the world, you're seeing some extreme examples of central banks that get extremely mathematical about getting to 2.0, and they are actually totally not focusing on this bigger picture. Well, the bigger picture here, you said this earlier, the idea that we're going to see substantial currency movement. Give us an example of a pair where we're going to see big figure movement that somebody can enjoy making or losing money on today. <laughs> well, so so we've seen actually pretty big moves in 2018, right? We've had dollar yen from 113 down to 106. That's a pretty big move. And Does it go further? It means it's going to go under 100? I think, uh, so I'm obsessed with capital flows. I spent right. the last week just crunching all the Japanese yeah. capital flows because this is what our clients are very, very focused on now. Uh, I think we're actually going to take a bit of a breather now. I think there's some of the forces that okay. pushed it very fast are going to take a breather. But I think okay. the next big pair to focus on is right. sort of this thing about NAFTA versus China. We've had all the tension around the NAFTA currency, Mexico right. and right. Canada. The next piece of tension is going to be China. Right. So I think there can be some very interesting movement there where there's relaxation yeah. around the NAFTA currencies and more pressure on Asian currencies. Okay. Uh, Jens Nordvik with us with Exante Data. 
John, why don't you bring in our next guest who just had, he added to the GDP of the greater New York area. Did he? Because he had to get a new mantle for his fireplace. Yes. Um, his house is so big, he has like four fireplaces in it. Are we bring it in the, the Morningstar <clears throat> Fixed Income Fund Manager of the Year. The trophy was so big, he had to get, yeah. you know, he had scaffolding up until they replaced it with a marble buttressed <laughs> Part of that PGM team is Greg Peters, Managing Director and Senior Investment Officer. Greg, it's always great to get you on a program, to, to get your time. Really fascinating, the compare and contrast between a January jobs report and a February payrolls report. The fear that the January payrolls report put into this market next to the calm that was ejected into this market for risk assets on Friday following the February payrolls report. Where's the truth? One or the other somewhere in between, Greg? Yeah, the lesson is let's not get um, uh, too excited one way or, or the other uh, month to month. I think we need to look at uh, some of the longer trends. And, you know, January was such an important uh, set of data. Uh, it really kind of catalyzed a, a new regime in many different respects of higher yields, inflation getting out of control, so on and so forth. Uh, uh, and the last uh, and the last release on uh, Friday really yeah. just threw cold water on it. So I think the message, at least at least for us at PGM, is you know let's not get overly excited one way or the other. Let's look at the broader set of data and the broader trends. And when you look at that, it's clear that uh, you're seeing some firming on the inflation side. But as far as uh, you know, runaway wage uh, or kind of broad-based inflation, I think it's way too premature to uh, be called for that. So to that point, Greg, are we seeing the shifting of, into a new regime, or is it just the fear of a shift to a new regime that is gripping markets to some extent? I think it's more fear than reality at this point. Uh, you know, I do know that markets trade expectations, uh, and so something that we watch very closely is inflation expectations. But at some point, the expectations have to match kind of the underlying hard data. Uh, uh, and uh, I, I think that became somewhat disconnected uh, the past uh, several months or so. Um, so, you know, you know, to us, as steady as she goes, uh, you think the Fed continues to move uh, you know, three times this year, maybe four. Uh, 2019 is the bigger question. Uh, the markets are still pricing in uh, just one and a quarter for 2019. Uh, but, um, yeah, I think it's steady as she goes, quite frankly, Jonathan. Uh, Greg, what was the distinction that made for your outstanding 2017? What was the strategic decision you made within your fixed income portfolios to outpace the easy-to-find average? Yeah, so last year was, uh, you know, gosh, uh, you know, we're talking a lot about last year. This year is much, much harder, I will say. Last year, I, what I think the markets got really excited uh, uh, over the new administration coming in. Uh, yields really spiked mm -hmm. higher, uh, and we felt like uh, a lot of that was uh, not going to come to fruition. And, in fact, that played out. I think this year is very different, though, as you are seeing tangible things happening, right? You have seen a continued firming of the labor market at a trend that has been in place for you know many years, of course, uh, but uh, but uh, but you have uh, more pro-growth policies uh, and you have a tighter labor market, even though uh, the jobs data report uh, did suggest, and rightfully so, uh, that there's more um, kind of uh, sideline workers than 
many people envision. But I think last year was really easy. Yeah. Uh, obviously, retrospect uh, is you know much easier to call. But if you look at the fact that you had a really bullish environment for credit, as an example, with no volatility, I mean, you were seeing sharp ratios across many different portfolios of over 10 times. Yeah, well, they were like uh, equ- yeah, they were equity. They were equity-like returns almost. Are you managing for the coupon this year? I think this year is much more difficult. And so we squeezed a lot of the juice out of the lemon uh, last year, and I think this year is much more difficult. And so while we're not bearish uh, from a fundamental or economic standpoint, where we're more cautious is really just valuations. As valuations have really come far, and it's hard uh, to get too excited. And that's why we've taken down our risk somewhat. Um, and, you know, to your point, uh, Tom, it you know, seems like much more of a coupon, hopefully with a, a little kiss to it, uh, but I think it's more of a coupon year. Well, Greg, let's work our way through it from rates um, through to corporates and, and begin with rates and talk to me about how you express this framework in the market. For rates last year, from speaking to you guys throughout the whole year, stay short the front end. The long end isn't going to drift higher in the way that people expect. That's going to remain anchored. So you're looking for the curve to flatten, short the front end, and then we're just going to stay anchored around 10s through to, through to 30s. How has that changed for you, Greg, in rates? That is still broadly the case. I, uh, we still think that uh, a curve flattener uh, is the preferred path or the way that uh, we see uh, the rate curve playing out. Uh, but the front end is increasingly more difficult to be short. I, 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 I still think you need to be short the front end. Uh, and so we do have uh, uh, the same flattener bias for sure, uh, but, uh, but it's not as, uh, as easy as it once was, as there's a lot being priced into the front end now. And so we mentioned there's uh, three full hikes priced in for 2018. Uh, you know, if you get the four hikes, that's basically priced for perfection. So I don't think you want to invest in something priced for perfection, uh, and so we're getting close. But I still think it's the same trend uh, if you want to be long yeah. belly, uh, uh, and the curve will flatten. What's the yield there? I mean, within the mix that you have at PGM, can I get to a 4% all-in coupon? Uh, it's uh, it's hard, Tom. Yeah. You know? I mean, you know, that's the point. The underlying kind of yield construct, not only here in the U.S., but more more so uh, in Europe, and we are a global manager, uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's very challenging to get uh, high yields, if you would. Um, uh, and so, you know, quite frankly, speaking of high yield, that's an area that, uh, you know, we've really liked for quite some time. Uh, we have taken uh, our risk down in, uh, uh, in the high-yield market broadly, but what we're doing is that we actually think there's more value uh, out the risk curve. And so we see more value in triple Cs than we do double Bs. Which, let's be clear, Greg, that's where the performance has been this year as well. That's, Why is that's, that? Uh, be, be, uh, you know, because I think uh, the, the double B market has been much more sensitive to the selling that you're seeing on the mutual fund and ETF side. Uh, as that's more rate yield driven, um, whereas the triple C part of the market, uh, which we think you're getting amply paid for, is about you know over 3.3 times the amount of spread relative to double Bs. Right. Uh, it's more idiosyncratic, uh, 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 and you're not tied to kind of rates moving up and down. As so, much. Greg, just to be clear, are you blaming the Taurus for the uh, the action in double Bs? 
No, I, I just think that's where this, uh, you know, the rate-sensitive uh, piece of the market is, right? Yeah. Uh, but to be clear, you have seen a proliferation of these short-duration, high-quality funds, both in investment grade uh, and high-yield bonds. Uh, and so that's the first thing to be sold. Greg Peters, PGM Managing Director and Senior Investment Officer. This is a formal thing before we get to a serious conversation with Chad Bound of the Peterson uh, Institute. This is an annual thing that happens now, folks. We're handing the bracket to the head of my life. To the boss. To let her know that we are boiler up. Is this why Purdue is in oh, the bracket? Yes. No, For our global audience. It's because of Rachel. Yes. Okay. Yes. My whiz- I actually did pretty well last year. How are they ranked? They're like good. They're better. They're, be- they're like. What? They're a two-team. Oh, okay. They're a two-team. There it is, Proven. Be nice to me is, for the rest John, of the week. John Tucker, are you doing my bracket yes, or what? Are you getting this done? Here, hand this to Pharaoh so he knows what not to do. Okay. <laughs> there you go. Thank just you. The there it is, John. Everything he just, do there, just do the opposite of what I did. Okay. Chad Bound with us for the Peterson Institute. We have a lot of fun with the brackets, and we say good morning to all of you across uh, the nation on Sirius XM Channel 119. Mr. Bound is with the Peterson Institute. And we do need an update on tariffs is that that nudges away in our vision, and yet it should not. Chad, what do we need to focus on now with this huge tariff debate? Well, uh, first thing we need to focus on is my, uh, my Bucknell Bison, uh, my, my school number 15 uh, feed against uh, Michigan State. Get to the important round. stuff, we'll Chad. we watching them. <laughs> Didn't um, go there. <laughs> but more seriously, uh, so we're still waiting to see how all this plays out. So President Trump on Thursday announced 25% tariffs on steel, 10% tariffs on aluminum. But the first thing he said was, well, for now, we're not going to impose these things on Canada and Mexico. Uh, we're going to potentially exempt them, though we may hang it over their head a little bit in the NAFTA talk, so we'll see what happens there. Uh, but everybody else is up for grabs. Now, he did open the possibility that our security alliance partners be, may be able to wiggle their way out of this somehow. Uh, yeah. And so the U.S. Trade Representative, uh, Robert Lighthizer, was in Brussels on Saturday meeting with Cecilia Malmstrom, the EU Trade Commissioner, the Japanese Trade Commissioner, uh, you know, potentially seeking them to get exempted. But Nobody else has been exempted yet. So as of now, only Canada and Mexico are not going to be hit by these new tariffs. So as the President of the United States has just tweeted for us all to see, the Secretary of Commerce, Wilbur Ross, will be speaking with representatives of the European Union about eliminating the large tariffs and barriers they use against the United States of America, the words of the President this morning. Chad, this is the time when really the United States should be working with Europe, with Japan, to address the issue that is China. Instead, there seems to be friction, tension between themselves at a time that China is sort of centralizing strength within President Xi. Talk to me about how difficult it will be to take on China alone if you don't have Europe and, J- Europe and Japan with you. Yeah, that's exactly the issue here. So the source of the underlying concern when it comes to steel, aluminum, is global overcapacity, most of which has come out of China. Uh, and, you know, the Europeans are suffering in much the same way as U.S. steel and aluminum. Uh, the Japanese are as well. So you would think that if you're the U.S. administration, that you would want to get the EU, Japan, to cooperate with you in dealing with this, this underlying 
problem of China. But that doesn't seem to be their approach. They're going to, you know, potentially slap tariffs on them. The EU has already come out with their list of products over which they're going to have to threaten to retaliate against the United States. And so all of this is really a sideshow to the actual underlying problem. So let's get to the underlying problem. I'm still waiting for a great answer to this question, Chad. What is the best approach for dealing with China? Well, I do think you need cooperation. Uh, you know, having the United States trying to go at it alone uh, and without its key allies is is really not going to work. So you do need to get the other major players out there uh, to actually stand up, stand up alongside you. Now, you know, we we can't take that off the table completely. Uh, you know, there was a a renewed engagement by the three, the U.S., EU, and and Japan, coming out of the weekend. You know, this was this meeting that they had on Saturday was long scheduled. The timing ended up being a little bit awkward because it was right after President Trump's uh, mm-hmm. tariff announcement. But this thing had been in the planning for a while, trying to deal with China on uh, steel and aluminum yeah. capacity, the bigger intellectual property issues that, that they're worried about jointly as well. So it's going to take a, a cooperative approach for, for these and, and all the other economies of the world to, to really address this. Now, Chad, I'm sure that we'll touch upon this uh, with you in the future. None of this matters after the Bucknell Bison crushed Colgate to get to the joy of facing Michigan State. Chad Bone, how does the uh, strategy change as you move from Colgate to Michigan State? Well, Michigan State is going to be tough. Um, so I will say <laughs> Bucknell does have a really good track record in, in the big dance. Uh, you know, it wasn't that long ago that I forget if they were a 15 or 16 seed. They actually took out Kansas in the first round. So you never know with my bison. Nothing why, is, yeah. uh, why nothing why is don't I see Bucknell in your bracket, Tom King? It is not in my bracket. What I, what I suggest, <laughs> Chad Bound, is you head over to the chemistry department at Bucktel, Bucknell, folks, which was world acclaimed. And maybe they can come up with some flubber or something to put on the ball to uh, get you within shouting distance of Michigan State. Chad Bound of the Peterson Institute in Bucknell as we look at uh, tariffs and uh, really the fun for our global audience. It is just plain fun to look at March Madness. As people know, uh, it's very simple. At 200 West Street downtown is the Goldman Sachs Tower, 44 stories high. And, of course, all of Global Wall Street were peeled for Fumata Bianca or Fumata Nera today. And as Dakin Campbell knows, the ballots of the partners were burnt and the white smoke came out. And David Solomon was anointed. I mean, you know, we've talked a lot about these people, David. Let's talk about the process within Goldman, or for that matter, any other firm, and what it means for Goldman Sachs forward. Pope Solomon, is, is, uh, was he selected with joy, or was this a, a really ugly battle? It's a good question. I think it depends on who you ask. Uh, I think if you talk to David or Harvey in their... Um, in moments when they're being real, they would say this did get heated at times, uh, not to the term, not to the tune of, you know, yelling at each other, but they both yeah. took it very seriously and they both wanted to win this. How do they compare and contrast the soul? There's that point in a William Cohen book where the leadership of Goldman Sachs is having an egg salad sandwich. I think it was uh, it three guys, uh, uh, Pim, years ago when they did some ginormous deal 
across a deli over an egg salad sandwich. I mean, the heritage of the firm is conservative and basic. How did these two guys stack up within the new Goldman Sachs? Yes. Yeah, so Harvey came up through the securities division. He did spend some time in the investment bank, but he's really thought of internally and by a lot of people externally as a trading, as a sales and trading guy. David came up through the investment banking division almost exclusively. He ran that division for uh, you know, a decade or more. Uh, it's worth noting that in 2017, the investment banking division turned in more revenue than the traders for the first time since 2000. So the first time in 17 years. So certainly you could say the investment bank and the people who have led the investment bank are ascendant. Can you tell us a little bit about the person? Uh, who is Mr. Solomon? Uh, I mentioned earlier that uh, his assistant, I believe it was earlier in the year, was arrested because he was found to have been stealing wine from uh, Mr. Solomon's wine collection. And he's got a background. What he's a, a went to Hamilton College, black belt in karate, I believe. No, that's Harvey Schwartz. Harvey Schwartz, I beg your pardon. Yeah, so, so David went to Hamilton College. He's been an investment banker for uh, just about all of his career. Uh, and he does have a wine collection. Uh, he is a DJ on the That's side. what I was, yeah, I confused DJ and Black Belt. What, was, what is yes. he a DJ? What's that about? So he plays electronic music. Uh, he does that about once a month. Uh, it's something that he got into several years ago and is he considers one of his hobbies. Is the uh, the issue of diversity and uh, social uh, uh, change, I guess, uh, is that a factor in, in how uh, Goldman Sachs sees its future and as a result, perhaps, uh, why Mr. Solomon was tapped? David, when he was running the investment bank, uh, did a lot in div on diversity efforts. He really tried at the analyst level, so the incoming class, to, to really get 50% men and 50% women. And his belief is if you can start at 50-50 at the bottom, then by the time people leave or uh, you ask people to, to go, by the time you get to the top, you'll have a much broader set of choices to make for the division or the firm senior leaders. He took that message to the board and I, um, as I understand, really impressed the board with those concerns and with those well, what, what he's trying to do there. Are, is the board removed from the partners? Because I'm looking at revenue growth, which is basically going nowhere within a general statement. And operating income is basically going nowhere is a general statement. I mean, is this really a, you know, forget about all the social stuff. Is this just a financial exercise where Mr. Blankfein didn't get it done? In terms of running the bank, running the bank, I'm looking at revenue growth, which is flat. I'm looking at operating income over four or five years. Great. Mm -hmm. It's a great margin, 35 cents, 36 cents on the dollar. But there's no growthiness here. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm sorry, Dakin. That's what I'm seeing. Nobody's doing a James Gorman victory lap. Understood. So is that what this is about? Understood. This is uh, it is it is. I guess you could you could put this in terms of a a vote for the future as opposed to a vote for the past. So if Goldman was a trading shop and they turned in $33 billion in trading alone in 2009, then going forward, maybe they think that yeah. uh, that they're not going to be a trading shop, that it has to be more broadly based uh, investment banking. They're not giving up on trading. Let's not get ourselves wrong here. 
But they've also got asset management is, and they've got this consumer lender. I'm as trying well. to get Henry Paulson as a DJ and I can't get there. Is Mr. Solomon essentially a uh, Paulson equivalent? Uh, he is definitely a client guy. The two of them yeah, share, share I mean, that I, very much. I, I, yes. Folks, just so everybody understands this, Henry Paulson is perceived as this high and mighty Wall Street guy. He was out in the dregs of Chicago taking every single airplane flight domestically out of O'Hare that exists. I mean, people don't know this. I mean, it's all the romance of being on the Upper East Side and deciding where to go to your second, third, or fourth country house. And as you know, Dakin, that's not what it's about. It's like a grind, isn't it? That's right. It is. And and David has been, since he's been tapped as co-COO 15 months ago, David has really continued the, uh, the schedule that he set when he was at the investment bank, going out, seeing clients, Going out, he's I, as I understand, he's introduced himself to maybe to many partners that he hadn't met before. So, uh, so that is sort of in his blood, and and uh, he's similar to Hank Paulson in that. How does a decision like this get made, and uh, are there any other changes that you foresee happening at Goldman Sachs uh, because of his appointment? I want to say I want to be careful saying I don't see any other changes because I'll be I could be wrong in a heartbeat. Dake, uh, Dake, excuse me, Dakin Campbell wrong. Make a note on that, please. <laughs> uh, but this is this is largely a choice made by the board and also Lloyd Blankfein. So uh, at some point, the board, as we understand, in February, came to a decision that they'd seen enough among these two and that David was their guy, and so. Uh, you know, it took them several mm -hmm. weeks to to come out with the announcement, but that's what got us to to today. James Johnson, Bill George, who we've had on the show many times, uh, Mr. Mattel, Michelle Burns, David Vinier, we know him from another time, Peter Oppenheimer, Ellen Kuhlman is as well. What's the character of the board? It's a good question. It's changed in the in the last couple of years. They've added a couple new. Uh, members. Ellen and, Coleman from DuPont. Yes, yeah. certainly. Uh, but as I understand, these are largely people who are loyal to Lloyd Blankfein and are going to uh, allow Lloyd, despite what you might think, uh, Tom, about uh, revenue and earnings growth, the board is still content, as I understand, to let Lloyd sort of finish out his term how on, long is that his for? Terms. That's important. How long is that for? Yeah, they haven't set a timetable yeah. yet. Uh, it could be a year. I, it will not be two years. Okay. I, I have to ask a sensitive question, and with great respect to Mr. Blankfein's wonderful health, is this about the fragility of his health over the last three, four years? I don't think so. I think That's he's good. largely That's recovered good. beyond that from, yeah. from that episode, yeah. from that cancer. What's the biggest challenge that Goldman Sachs has right now? The biggest challenge, I think, as 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 Tom uh, spelled it out, is is revenue growth, with with the trading business, which had been such a big part of the the revenue base in the past, not doing well, and certainly not going back to the days of the pre pre crisis days. They really yeah. need to figure out how to generate revenue growth who's, in other areas. Who's quickly? Who's next on Wall Street? Do you have any idea where where there's sort of a time for a CEO to change? Mr. Gorman's had a heck of a run. Is he? entrenched at Morgan Stanley? I think he is. I yeah. think the next one you might see would be Jamie Dimon. Despite, really? I really? mean, that's, yeah. I don't really know anything, but that's, that would be my guess. Jamie's yeah. been there a long time. Uh, I think he, if he had something else to do and if he right. felt like he was at a good point in time, he might uh, do something like this as well. Okay, Dakin Campbell, terrific briefing. Thank you. That, that was really valuable.
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. 